Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1955 film, The Night of the Hunter. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Barrett, uh, what is your history with this film? I'm going to just jump right into that question, and then I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk more about this, but yeah, it's another one of those films that I was just aware of for a long time, and this is actually only the second time I've seen it. I saw it first time maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I haven't got a long history with it. Okay. I know I saw this for the first time, I think a year ago. I think it was when we watched for film forum, we watched out of the past and I was just so enthralled with, um, with Robert Mitchum that I thought, well, I need to see night of the hunter because this is, is his other really, really famous performance. Um, and I was kind of blown away by it, but it was interesting watching it again this week. And I feel like I saw it with a different set of eyes. And I think, I think this movie is stunning. I think it's it's really amazing. Um, I, I I don't know that I would put this in my like list of the greatest movies of all time, but I will say, if someone was trying to make the case that this is the greatest movie of all time, I would listen. I, it's like I feel like it it's uh, it's deserving of being in a conversation on a long list of like this might be about as good as a movie can get in certain ways. Um, now, what's interesting about it is that it is a critical and commercial failure in 1955 it's like this just kind of misses the mark um but now it's regarded as really i mean it's on the sight and sound list it's number 63 on the sight and sound list so this is another one of those movies that uh just wasn't uh for for various reasons wasn't understood at the time and it leads to a kind of i think a kind of film tragedy which is this is the only thing that charles lawton made and Again, I think this movie, the, I think the construction of this movie, I think the way it tells stories, the way it's interested in stories, the ideas it's interested in, the way it looks and sounds is so masterfully done. It it breaks my heart that this is the only film he made. So can you tell me a little bit about who Charles Lawton is? Yeah. And, and I will also say that uh, it broke Lawton's heart, too. It was, uh, yeah, it, it really, it really kind of crushed him. So. You know, Lawton made his reputation as an actor. Um, really, he was sort of a preeminent stage and then kind of a preeminent film actor of, uh, of his generation. So he had kind of three big roles in the 1930s. He was Henry VIII in The Private Lives of Henry VIII. He was Captain Bly in Mutiny on the Bounty. And then his kind of his most famous role was probably The Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, in 1939. So he was kind of known for uh, sort of playing grandiose, almost at times megalomaniacal characters. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis uh, cited Lawton as one of his inspirations, saying he's probably the greatest film actor uh, of his generation. He also uh, turned his hand to directing uh, stage productions before he turned to movie directing. Uh, and he, um, he was giving, uh, one of the reasons why he got this, why he was led to direct this film is he was giving these uh, public readings, which were very, very highly acclaimed. And uh, Paul Gregory, uh, who became his manager, also then was the producer uh, for this film because he felt like it was kind of a perfect opportunity for uh, for Lawton. I have to say, just a, tri- aside, a trivia aside, that Paul Gregory was married to Janet Gaynor. Uh, who, of course, we saw in, in Sunrise. Oh, sure, uh, sure. Anyway, so so he thought that this was a really great, um, great opportunity for for Lawton with this particular material. He'd gotten a hold of the novel actually before it was published, uh, and then the novel, when it was published, was shortlisted for the National Book Award. So there were a lot of things that would would have pointed to this film being successful. Uh, you know, based on an acclaimed novel, Lawton has this big reputation, at least as an actor. Uh, and a stage director. So I think it probably took everybody by surprise in that sense when the film flopped. Why do you think it flopped? Because because it's, like you said, it, it has some pedigree leading into it. And then, I mean, I have some thoughts on maybe why, but like, but it's great. It's a great movie. And it's got such a compelling, I think two compelling performances at the center of it. I think, I mean, you, you think about Mitchum when you think about this movie, but I think, I think uh, Lillian Gish is really outstanding in this movie and really important in this movie this should work yeah before before i answer your first question i i do want to do an aside on lillian gish um lillian gish was um one of lawton's favorite actors uh he talked about the influence that he she had on him when he saw one of her earlier films broken blossoms from 1919 
Um, she got her start in 1912. Um, her last film was 1987. So she acted in eight decades. Uh, she had retired from acting and after making Duel in the Sun in 1946 and Lawton kind of persuaded her to, uh, uh, to come back uh, in, into cinema. Uh, there's a story that Lawton, when he was on his deathbed, uh, dying of cancer, awoke out of his coma and said, I fell in love with Lillian Gish. Um, so she, she was the one he had to have for this film. I, I, I think the reason the film flopped is um, if, you, if you kind of try to put yourself back in 1955, and you, know, you and I have watched enough films from that period of time, that I think that one thing you can say about films in the 40s and the 50s in general is they tended to fall into recognizable genres. Um, and one thing this film does not do stylistically, thematically, even in terms of the performances, it doesn't fall into a particular genre. It sometimes gets uh, slotted into film noir, which you and I have seen watch plenty of together, but it's not a very typical film noir. It's got noirish elements. It's got melodramatic elements. Um, Lawton very deliberately um, based his style to a certain degree on silent films. Uh, he went back and he watched a lot of Griffith. He ran a lot of the silent films in the original Nitrate um, uh, form. So that means he was really impressed by the crisp black and white uh, photography. Um, it's got elements that we've seen before of German Expressionism, if you think most recently of watching M. It's a kind of, and I, I think it's a masterfully done blend but if you're trying to tell people, here's what this film is, how, do you, how would you make a trailer for this film that would in any way prepare people for what they're about to see? Um, so I think that was the problem. I, I don't, and, and, and it also wasn't marketed very well. Paul Gregory wanted to market it very carefully. He wanted to do what you often do with films that need to build an audience. I think, for example, about, you know, if you, if you go forward 10 years uh, into the 1960s, you think about, you know, trying to make um, Bonnie and Clyde into a hit and how so much of it had to do with actually marketing it. And this film, the studio had no faith in it. The film was marketed badly. Um, so it, it really didn't have any, any way to help it to success. Plus the critics, except for Francois Truffaut in France, uh, the critics were baffled by it. Um, they, they just didn't know what to think of it. It's interesting to think about marketing this movie because I think you're right. In 1955, how do you do it? This seems like it would be such an easy movie to market now because you just you market it around the magnetism of Mitchum's performance. Like there, you could you could easily cut a trailer of just without giving anything away, just moments of him where you just be like, I have to go see that guy doing that, you know, mm -hmm. like, but, but I think you're right. I don't think, I think that's a lot harder to do probably. when I think about what trailers looked like in 1955 compared to what they look like now, I think, I think you could market that very differently. Well, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I'm thinking about that. Sure. You could market it with Mitchum and you could do, you know, obviously the love and hate scene and all that, but, but that, that just kind of anticipates how the, film it's a misdirect. Started. Yeah, it is because, you know, one of the things that I was struck afresh by, and to be honest, I didn't remember a lot of the film very well, was was the way that Mitchum disappears. You know, and 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 he's all, and and when he comes back, he's kind of different because the film has it, again it's shifted the it's shifted genre. So when he comes back, he's now in Lillian Gish's world. He's not in his world anymore, and that's that people aren't going to know quite what to what to make of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a couple of filmmaking things I want to talk about before we get into some of the ideas of this movie. Um, so first question that I, that, I, that I thought about as I was reading about the making of this movie, in your mind, does this movie support or refute auteur theory? And, I, and, and I, let me explain why I'm asking this question, because when you read about Lawton making this movie, it seemed very... And, and again, there's mythology around everything, but it seemed like there was a degree to which he kind of was upfront about, like, I don't know how to do some of these things. So instead, he empowers people around him. He has the 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 person doing the score and the music on set. He has, um, you know, he he puts a lot of faith, I think, in his cinematographer, who we'll talk about, in the the screenwriter, in even in the guy who wrote the book, um, Davis Grubbs. Uh, he works with actors differently, so you could say, well, this is actually just a big collaborative process, which someone like William Goldman would say, see, that's why it's not auteur theory. Or you could say, as the auteur, he has a vision about how film should be made, and it is this collaborative thing that he is overseeing. 
What's your sense of, of how you would look at this relative to auteur theory? Yeah, that's a great question, Sam. And and I and I do love the stories, you know, about him saying, shouting out, "What do I do now?" or "I'm confused." Um, I, I, okay, I'm I'm going to to a certain degree beg the question because I think it really depends on what you mean by auteur. So I think there's one ver- vision view of auteur theory which suggests a kind of autocratic rule. It's like, this is exactly how I'm going to do things, and you're going to bend to my vision. And I think in some ways, uh, there are certain auteurs that that fits. I mean, I think to a certain degree, if you can believe some of the documentary footage, that's sort of Herzog as an auteur. I mean, you get the feeling that Werner Herzog says, this is my vision, this is what we're going to do. But I think the kind of auteur that Lawton um, embodies is Lawton, he did have a vision. He did know what he wanted this film to look like, and he knew what he wanted this film uh, to do. Uh, you know, there's a there's a wonderful anecdote where I think he's he's talking to uh, to Lillian Gish, and he talks about the idea that when when he first started going to films or people first started going to silent films, you know, he said they would they would they would sit up. And take and, and and take notice. And now they just sit they sit back and eat their popcorn. Uh, he says, "I want them to sit up again." So I think part of part of the reason why it is it, it is auteur is because Latin does have a kind of a vision of what he wants to 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 be, but he wants to work with others in order to get there. I mean, you're right. This is one of the most amazingly collaborative films that I've ever heard about, including. You know, even 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 to the extent that when James Agee wrote the screenplay, he turned in a screenplay that was 300 pages long. It would have been a six hour film. So Lawton went and edited it down. And yet when it came time for screen credit, it, w- it all went to Agee. Lawton didn't take any screen credit for the, for the screenplay, which is which is very different from what happened with Citizen Kane and Wells and Mankiewicz, of course. So I, I think. You know, it really depends on what you want to think about what an auteur is. And so it could either be the Captain Bly that, that Loughton plays in Mutiny on the Bounty, My Way or the Highway, or it could be somebody who says, an auteur is like an orchestra conductor. What I'm really trying to do is get all these people to play all their parts and it all come together into a harmonious whole. And nobody would doubt that an orchestra conductor is fully in charge. And yet being in charge means being successfully collaborative. And that's what Lawton does. And that's also why I think his not making any more films is a real loss because it could have been, he could have been a great model for how, for how films can be made. Yeah, I mean, this seemed like such an untroubled set in some ways because of that. Uh, you know, like there, there were there were fewer stories about those things. One of the things I found really interesting, and this makes sense with Lawton as an actor, that that he filmed the actors differently instead of you know uh action and cut it was we're just gonna roll the cameras and we're gonna keep doing this um which is clear i'm assuming lawton is like this is how i wish people would allow me to be to act in film mm. you know and, and 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 reading about it it's the way silent films were done more because you could feed things to the actors and you you know you wouldn't be hearing those things but but he just thought differently about how to do some of that and it even seems like um there's a degree to which the the character of uh, of Powell gets to be shaped by um, by Mitchum. You know that there's some freedom in doing that. I think uh, from the first uh, the first interview with with Mitchum, it seemed very clear to Lawton that Mitchum understands this character. Uh, you know, maybe because of some darkness in Mitchum's life as well. Yeah, well, I want to I, I want to say one more thing about Artur, um, and that is that um, I think. I would also say that in some ways to go back to one of our recent films that, that Lynch is an auteur works fairly collaboratively. Kubrick as an auteur is, is the, is the autocrat. And I think about poor Shelley Winters who after this successful uh, role as a widow in this film went on to play the widow in Kubrick's the leader. Uh, and I suspect that that was not nearly as satisfying an experience for her. Um, but Mitchum in this role, you know, Mitchum, it, it's a, it's a it's kind of a different sort of role for Mitchum um, in some respects, but on the other hand, uh, Mitchum had this reputation in Hollywood and publicly as kind of a kind of a hellraiser, kind of a rapscallion, and so the notion that he would play uh, this uh, this demented preacher isn't really that far in some ways from the you know every almost every role he plays, even when he's quote a good guy, uh, there's always a shadow. 
Uh, and, 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 that, and so I think he was really well cast for that reason. However, I will also point out that this is a role that Gary Cooper turned down. Um, last week, Sam, you and I watched Red River with John Wayne, and we talked about the fact that Gary Cooper had turned down the role that John Wayne plays. It seems that Cooper is forever turning down roles in which there is some sort of moral shadiness that he doesn't want to risk having, mm -hmm. you know, ruining somehow his, his image. Whereas Mitchum famously was arrested for marijuana possession in 1948. Mitchum has no trouble going here, but it also meant that the film ran into a, another reason why the film didn't do well. It ran into trouble with Catholic uh, and Protestant censors because they didn't like the depiction of the of the preacher or religion in general. And why it, I definitely want to talk about really because I think this is a great movie about religion actually. But so we're going to get to that. But I want to stay on a couple of filmmaking things. Um, one of the, I was thinking, why do I think this movie's great? And there's two filmmaking things that I think make it great. This move first off, this movie has such unbelievable pacing. Um, so I when I watched it yesterday, I was I watched it again and I was taking notes and I was shocked by like how quickly we move through this story, especially at the beginning, but really throughout the whole story, this movie does not waste a second of time. I mean, things happen with such, uh, such economy to mm -hmm. set up the story and even to tell the story. So just in the first few minutes of this movie, I'm just going to run down some things that we see happen. We see Rachel Cooper telling a story to these children up in the stars kind of so we get this this sort of weird very quick we see these kids who we never see again discover a dead body while they're playing hide and seek we see powell talking to god in his car we see powell arrested at a burlesque house and convicted we see ben harper running from the police giving the money to his kids getting arrested and convicted it happens in minutes all of this setup and and what i realize is it's like he's we're seeing what feel like full scenes, but the pacing feels like montage. Like it feels like it's, we're just getting flashes, but like nothing's missing from those scenes. I'm not left being like, I'm confused by what I'm looking at. And this is, this is part of why I feel like lot. I just wish Lawton had made so many more movies like this, this, they know how to tell a story here. It's kind of amazing. The pacing of this. And I think in lesser hands, this movie is probably 45 minutes longer because there's so much stuff you could stretch out. You know, even when you get to the end of the movie where we get kind of the um, uh, we get kind of the the confrontation between Cooper and and Powell mm -hmm. that resolves really fast, mm -hmm. you know, like like he shows up. He kind of disappears for a second. We don't know where he is. She shoots him. He runs into the barn and, you know, and partially it's because that's not the real resolution of the story. It's part of the resolution of the story, but she's got, uh, um, the, the story has another thing it wants to tell, but I just, I, I was shocked how like breakneck the whole movie felt in terms of like, we are clipping along really quickly. And I, I was like, I was sort of taken aback by that. I, I, I do think, though, I, I think that if I think about the pacing and the setting, I think it kind of falls into three, three acts, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got the, the first part, as you're, you're describing, because I was very surprised to realize that Shelley Winters dies not even quite an hour into the film. Mm -hmm. I, again, I didn't remember. So to me, that, that part moves quickly. But then you get this kind of transition in terms of pacing and in terms of setting as the children take that, that, slip, that trip down the river. It doesn't drag, but it certainly slows. Right. And then, and then, and, and and it's also a transition from one world into another. And then you're in, then you're in Rachel's Rachel's world, and the pace kind of picks up again. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting the way the pacing and the visuals and the kind of world that's being created uh, kind of shift as you move from first, second to third act. And maybe a way to think about that is. This movie, and one of the things that I had forgotten about it when I rewatched it, realizing how much of this is the case, this is a movie that puts children at the center of the movie. And parts of it are through their eyes to, to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, and you get this sense of like, as a child, sometimes the world seems like it's moving so fast around you. The adult world is moving so fast around you. And then when they get out into the natural world on the, on the river, it's like, now we're at a natural rhythm because we're only moving at the rate that the river's moving kind of to a certain degree. And then we get back into the world again and the world picks up um, to a kind of degree. So I feel like, like that even matches sometimes as a child, how you experience the world. 
Yeah, and that's a really good point because evidently even some of the ways in which the sets were stylized were intended to reflect, according to Lot in any way, were kind of intended to reflect a child's view. Like children sometimes just notice certain details. They don't kind of see the whole the whole thing. And in a way, the way the there are times when the way the world of the film looks at least implies the child's point of view. I also think it's interesting, you know, earlier on in our podcast series, Sam, for some reason we talked a lot about trying to identify what was the point of view in a film. And I think this is, as you've already pointed out, this is a film that kind of shifts the point of view. Sometimes you feel that it's Powell. Sometimes it's one of the the male, the uh, adult characters and all, more often or not it's the children or then it's Rachel towards the end. So I think that's another really interesting technique that the film uh, adopts. And that is that you are kind of always shifting in and out of different points of view. Well, and so you mentioned sort of how this film looks and uh, and how intentional that is. The other big thing, I think this movie looks stunning. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. It is really a black and white movie and not a, this is not a grayscale movie. This is a black and white movie. Um, and I thought, inst- even before I read about who shot this movie, I'm like, man, this th- I, this makes you think of Orson Welles. It makes me think of like Chimes at Midnight. Turns out the, the uh, director of photography is Stanley Cortez, who was who shot Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons. So it's like, okay, there is some Welles DNA, potentially, at least in terms of collaborators, because I did just think like, we watch a lot of movies that are not in color, but not all of them feel mm. black and white like this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and a theme of this movie has to do with these kind of dualities. So, like, the fact that this is in such stark black and white, it also does look like like really great um, silent films, too. Like, mm. the, the scene where, where Willa gets, gets murdered, like, that is such a gore i mean the set is gorgeous and it's even like framed because you have so much in the shadow that it feels like he's changed not even the aspect ratio but the frame of what you're looking at to this sort of vaulted ceiling and you have this dramatic moment when he pulls the knife and i mean that that just feels like a silent movie scene you Mm -hmm. know um and uh and and i just think i think this that stunned me and then as you pointed out like the you know this is parts of this are to be are to be shot the way a child sees the world there is a storybook quality to mm-hmm. and it's and it's an unreality quality like mm-hmm. um uh, uh lawton even um uses drawings from the author uh davis grubbs who uh, was an art student as well and like and he's basically and this is another piece of the collaboration he said basically draw me what you think this looks like mm-hmm. and then they're like well let's make it look like that and there are things in this movie that seem like scenes in a children's book the way you would depict it in that yeah, and uh, it, it's almost like there's a wind in the willows quality as they're going down the river, and you see the you see the rabbit, and you see the frog, and you see the turtle, and, and then of course later on you see the owl. Um, yeah, so it's really I, I'm glad you said storybook because that really was one of the things that he was going for. It's really kind of a you know Rachel is sort of mother goose in a way, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and Lawton and Grub kind of had different views of what the story was about, right? Grubb Grub thought that the, the subject of the novel was uh, religious fakery, uh, religious bigotry and fanaticism. Um, and But Lawton thought it was more about the defeat of childhood demons. Mm. Um, and, you know, and so uh, Powell becomes a kind of a boogeyman. And, uh, and I, I mean, I love this. I love, you know, there's several kind of iconic scenes, but the scene when the children are in the, are in the barn and they look out and they see him on the horse in the horizon, right? And John says, doesn't he ever sleep? And, and it's like, it is. He's like that, that nightmare character that just never stops coming at you. And so one of the things that I had totally forgotten about the film is the way that, yes, the whole focus shifts to the end. It becomes a kind of, um, a, kind of a celebration um, Maybe a bit on the sentimental side, but kind of a celebration of childhood. You know, this notion that children are the strongest and the most resilient of of humanity, which um, eh, it's a little bit of a sentimental view, but it's also intended to kind of be inspirational at the same time. And yeah. and and perhaps inspire the Cohen brothers, right? The the dude abides, just right? Abide, <laughs> right? Well, I think about that the 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 shot you were talking about where they're in the barn and they see the 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 um, they see Powell the sort of this and it's the silhouette of him that also looks like a picture from a child from like a storybook because the easiest way to draw the thing in the distance is to just do this do this this uh this silhouette it also 
for some reason, and I can't quite place it, that that shot reminds me of something you would see in Murnau's Sunrise. Like there is yeah, something yeah. about like the framing and the the depth of what we're looking at and like the foreground and background that there is something and I, and I, again, I can't quite place why I feel that way, but it feels, it feels like that. So, okay. One of the things that I loved about this movie, and now we can maybe get into like actual story plot um, and, and kind of ideas is uh, as we said, this, this feels like a fairy tale set in the quote unquote real world. Mm. And that's, that's definitely how Lawton thought about it. You know, he thought about this was like a, a nightmarish, fairy tale or a nightmarish mother goose story um and it's interesting because i think this is so much better than the in quotes gritty or dark retelling of fairy tales that we've gotten in the last 20 years think of your like snow white and the huntsman or you know like like we actually are living in a world where people are trying to do versions of this like what if we took the fairy tales and did these other things with it and it's like this is what I love about this movie is this is truly dark. I think this is a terrifying movie. Like, mm-hmm. like the the moment when um, we first, the children first encounter Powell when it's just the shadow of him, his head and his hat when he's telling the story and you're hearing him sing. Um, that's truly terrifying. But I do think this is actually a movie for children. And that's also maybe why it was not terribly successful is like, he's trying to thread a needle here. Like this is a movie that I think if, uh, and and, um, years later, the British film Institute put this on, on their list of the top 50 movies you should see before you're 14. Mm -hmm. It's funny to be like night of the hunter. It's like, but actually you should like, this is, this is a kind of, it has the structure of, of fairy tales and even, even archetypes, right? So you start with um, Rachel Cooper giving this advice, you know, beware of false, beware of false preacher or false prophets. Um, mm-hmm. And so you get the sense that she's sort of telling us this story. Then the next thing you see is the, 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 one of my favorite moments in this movie is this crane shot of the children playing hide and seek. We mentioned this earlier and they find this, they, they, one of them opens up the cellar to hide and you see, at least part of a dead body there. Mm -hmm. And now what's interesting is we're never going to see those children again. They're not part of this story, but it is this indicator to say that, um, you know, this like childhood is being interrupted by the adult world. So it's sort of like, this is a story about to some degree about growing up. It's like, okay, like, 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 like we are in this space between, especially John maybe is in the space between childhood and adulthood. And maybe that's something he's coming to earlier than he expected, maybe earlier than he should, maybe not, but there, but it is just this like punch of a moment of like seeing children encounter something that children aren't supposed to have to encounter. They're not supposed to have to deal with death. And we get that shot. And I think that is such a great moment. You know, I think this could be a pretty terrifying film to see before you're 14. I got to think about that now. I saw that. I saw that list. Um, but I'm I all do- in on that idea. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 my daughter is 15 and hasn't seen it yet, but she's watching it soon. Like this is, this is, I think this is, I think this actually is something that in those early teen years would be really fitting. I, I, I think maybe I'd be more more specific. I think maybe you can see this between the ages of twelve and fourteen, um, but but it, but it could, but it can have you know we talked uh, you know we talked last week about you know why people watch scary movies and and you know one obvious reason of course is is they're cathartic um, and you know and and the world for kids the world can be full of adult figures like Harry Powell uh, even if they are not necessarily your your stepfather. Um, you know, my, 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 my brother was, a, was a really good athlete as a young kid, but he, he had the unfortunate mis, he had a misfortune of sometimes attracting some really mean coaches, like guys that somehow took a dislike to him. And I think about how maybe watching this film and seeing the defeat of Harry Powell would actually have been a very comforting thing for somebody like my brother, brother to watch. So I think in that respect, the idea that there are there is this, um, there is this kind of mother goose figure. There, there is also, and I know we want to talk about this in terms of the theme of the film. There are different takes on religion uh, and faith than what Harry Powell rep- represents, and I think it's really important that the film begins with. There's no mystery here, right? We don't wonder who is this guy, what has he done. We're told right away, children, beware of 
of, uh, of wolves in sheep's clothing. And what do you know? One shows up almost, almost right away. So in that sense, the film offers from the beginning a very kind of, um, it, it begins with a moral compass. Even if you kind of forget about it, it comes back again at the end. And that's really helpful for kids. Okay. If I'm making my case for like 10 to 14 watching this, uh, I'm going to jump to a question I was going to ask at the very end. I was thinking about what would be a good double feature to pair with this. And I would watch this. I think pairing this movie with Spirited Away is really interesting in terms of thinking about children who are, again, thrust into having to start to think about the realities of the world. Maybe a, maybe a little before they're ready, but that that's part of how growing up feels. Now, they're very different movies, but in the same way that I wanted my daughter to watch Spirited Away, I want her to watch this, too. Like, I, I, do, I do think there is, again, very different movies. It would be a weird double feature, but I think there is something to these movies that have these serious and important themes, but that really are saying uh, that I think I think to a degree are targeted at at thinking about what effects these things have on children, but also through the eyes of children to a certain degree. So maybe that's an overstatement, but I think that would be an interesting pair. I agree. That's, that, that's a very, that is, that is an interesting notion, Sam. I could go for that. Um, and then the, the last obvious fairy tale thing is the wicked stepfather. Like, like, you know, how many fairy tales have a wicked stepmother? And it's, mm-hmm. and I missed it the first time of like, Oh, this is like, it should just slap you in the face of, how many stories have the wicked step parent and like, well, this is, this is one of those stories as it turns out. Um, so I want to get to the, the, to the sort of thing about religion. Um, and, and, and I, I agree. I think this is a movie about um, competing views of religion, potentially real religion and false religion. Although maybe you disagree with Rachel Cooper's religion as well. And you can be open <laughs> to that, but I was, I was sort of blown away reading, you know, how well, and I guess it kind of makes sense because I know people, but like how religious groups pushed back against this. When I think, like, did you miss Rachel Cooper in this movie? Like, did you yeah. miss that this is about this is about what I see as as a real real religion, maybe real Christianity, um, counteracting the way Christianity gets used and weaponized in mm-hmm. in different ways. So, so to me, like, I think this is part of why I love this is I think this is such a great movie about religion you know because we get this um we get these competing views i mean we we obviously get you know just look at his hands love and hate right that that mm-hmm. we're gonna see is religion about love or is religion about hate now the the uh the wolf in sheep's clothing part of this is that uh powell is very happy to tell you the story of love and hate and how <laughs> love conquers hate although that's actually the opposite of how he how he is right but 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 we get that we we get this this also question of like, is religion about mercy or justice, mm-hmm. you know, or, 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 or maybe what is justice in religion? If we want to think about it less, less dually like that, um, because Powell from the very beginning is such a figure of judgment mm-hmm. um, when he's driving in that opening scene. I love, I love whenever Powell is talking to God, because it's really interesting, right? He says, he, he tells Powell, or he tells God, you know, your book is full of killings. It's like, you know, like, like, it's like I know that I've done, but I know what I've done, but I'm in his mind, I'm following your teachings, right? Your book is full of this. When he's sitting in that burlesque house mm-hmm. and he says, I think I, I could get this quote wrong. I think he says there are too many of them to kill or something yes. like that. And it's like, okay, this is a, this is a, a, a warped person as he thinks about religion. Now, what's interesting to me though, is I think Powell is not merely a religious charlatan looking for money. I think he kind of believes his religion. It's just his religion is is very warped. I mean, one of the dark moments of this movie is when he's talking to um, to Ben Harper, and Ben and Ben asks him, "What is this religion you're talking about?" And he says, "It's the one worked out between betwixt the Lord and me." And it's like, oh, he has a religion. It's just. It's a very personal warped religion, but, but, but I think he means it. And so we see this on the wedding night, like, you know, if he was just a charlatan out to out sort of for greed and things like this, you know, he probably has sex with Willa, but, but he actually, I think has, he has convictions there, there, there are these warped judgmental convictions, but he has them. And that makes him almost scarier to me. Well, you know, I think, I think there. There's often a relationship between sex and religion, right? Um, and, you know, you can sometimes religion can express itself as a kind of sublimated sexuality. I think about the, um, uh, I think about Beatrice in Dante's Divine Comedy and the notion that, you know, love, 
the love is a ladder. You be, you be, you begin with human love and somehow you were able to go up that ladder to divine love. But in the case of, of Paul, um, his religion is a expression of his repressed sexuality. Um, and the, and the switchblade serves as a, as an obvious, um, indication of that, right? So he's in the burlesque hall and he's obviously sexually aroused, uh, but at the same time, he is repulsed. And so he, he ends up being caught in that kind of um, battle. I mean, who knows? And, and the film doesn't go there, but, but who knows what early experiences he had or what early influence on him that made him feel so um, re repulsed by sex, you know? And so there, so there is a sense in which there is a kind of a conviction about, about evil in his mind that drives him to then do things that are evil, but which he thinks are in fact defensible because he is ridding the world of women who are obviously this carnal, this carnal temptation that needs to be eliminated. And as long as he's doing that, why shouldn't he pick up some money uh, along the way? I think one of the re one of the ways in which the film is particularly offensive to some Protestant sensibilities is because in some of its expressions, Protestantism is tends to be very individualistic, right? The, the kind of the me and Jesus approach. Uh, you know, everything's okay between me and Jesus. That's all I need to worry about. And I think that Paul is a, um, he is obviously a warped or an extreme expression of that. You know, as you quoted earlier, you know, I've got, I've got this arrangement worked out with the Lord. Um, but there are ways in which even within the bounds of what we might say is a more orthodox belief system, uh, people can be prone to do that, right? I mean, that, that's where a lot of religious charlatanism comes from, right? This, or even just religious misdirection, this notion that somehow this person has a particular kind of private line to God. And the problem with that is it almost never remains private. It almost always has some kind of impact on the people around, whether it's a false leader like Jim Jones in a cult, or whether it's somebody like this committing murder because somehow he feels that God has told him that that's okay. Uh, there's that line between the individual and the personal conviction and the effect it has on society is ultimately one that's very difficult to draw because it really may not exist. Yeah, and I'm, 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 I'm. I there are things that he says that interest me and, and the spell that he is able to cast over people. Like this is where, again, the Mitchum performance is so good because he is, he is seductive in listening to him talk. And, and so you buy the people who like tie themselves in knots to stay with him. Cause Willa does this. So I mean, so, so when another thing he says at the beginning, when he's in the car talking to God, he says, there are things that you hate, right? So then we're getting this sense that like, Again, his view of religion has to do with casting judgment on these things that God hates. Um, and then we see, like, I'm so amazed that that I, by the scene where we see Willa preaching, mm. when they're at the the like camp meeting, yeah. and she talks about how she uh, drove a drove a good man to murder, mm. right? By by sort of being who she was, and even when she knows that Powell is after the money, she's still at that point so under his spell that she's like. Or, or under the spell of his religion, I should say, because she said, but I know God brought you here, you know, to, to put to bring us together, even though it's like he, he she basically walked in on him, almost assaulting her daughter to try to get this information. Right. So that spell is really thick on her. Ruby has that same spell when she's standing outside of the the um, the jail, you know, at the end and is like, you know, could uh, they don't understand, but I love him. And it's like. Yes. You don't know him, right? And and you can start to see him casting that over Pearl, trying to drive this division between John and Pearl. But the part that I found fascinating about the spell that he casts over people are the spoons, the family who run the ice cream restaurant, because they're especially Mrs. Spoon, but both of them are taken in with him. And they're, again, they're taken in with his view of the world. And notice how if his view of the world is this is about judgment and vengeance, he even says uh, he says to Cooper um, about how the he's bringing the vengeance or the Lord is coming with him with the with the vengeance of the Lord. That this that that then turns into the lynch mob, right? Mm -hmm. It's like okay, once he has crossed us, now we are the we are the um, instruments of vengeance and judgment. And it's so interesting that Cooper, Rachel Cooper, actively avoids the lynch mob, actively yeah. avoids 
the children seeing it, having any, because that does not match with her view of religion. But, but Powell has essentially almost created the world in which a lynch mob goes after him because of his sort of view of, uh, or at least what he preaches about sort of hate and judgment and vengeance and that sort of take on religion. Well, you know, the lynch mob obviously took me back both to M, but, uh, but also to, uh, to Frankenstein. And uh, Lawton's wife, Elsa Lanchester, was, of course, the bride of the bride of Frankenstein. But it, but it also makes you think about what it what is monstrous. And so obviously you have this mob that reinforces the idea that Powell is is a monster. Um, but at the same time, I think that one of the other monsters in this film is Icy, Icy Spoon. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think she's monstrous. Um, you know, she's. She's the one that is uh, is pushing Willa in, into uh, into Powell's arms. Um, she's the one that is also completely taken in by Powell, and then she turns around at the end and she is kind of leading this this lynch mob. Um, reminds me all the way back to uh, the Oxbow incident and the lynch mob, which mm-hmm. is led by by the female character in that case. So I think that's one of the ways in which um, Powell remains. He, he's a he, he's a, he's a monster, but he remains human. And as you pointed out, I, I think that having Ruby in the in that part of the film being charmed by Powell and, and Rachel's really gracious view of what Ruby is up to. She says something like, you know, she's looking for love in the only foolish way she knows how, mm-hmm. you know, rather than saying you wicked child, you know, what are you doing, you know, getting together with boys and lying to me? She sees this instead as a, as a need for love. And desire for love, and that's that's the way in which love and hate is ultimately contrasted in this film, right? It's Cooper is hate, uh, and Rachel is love, and that's the real way in which that allegory plays plays itself out. Absolutely, because and what I love about the way Rachel Cooper is well, she's introduced at the very beginning of the movie, but then when when the kids encounter her, she, she you the first thing you see is she is yelling at them and carrying a switch and you're like oh this is another yeah. person who seems cruel and harsh and strict mm-hmm. but then you keep watching her and like you said that her response to ruby is such a response of kind of grace and mercy it's like i know that you don't understand but i know what ultimately what led you to do this thing is the desire for love. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. Now it can manifest itself in foolish ways. And she's saying you did it in a foolish way, but like, but ultimately what you're looking for is something that's been denied to you, right? Love, you know, you know, but you've been, you, because all these children are abandoned in one way or another. So, so she's like, kind of the world has done this to you. And this is, this is your attempt to make sense out of that. And then you see her, uh, just full of grace, especially grace notes for John. I think mm-hmm. she has this special place in her heart for John. And what I love is there's this, I love things that point to worlds beyond the movie. There are all these indications about her son, mm-hmm. you know, and how she hasn't seen her son in however long. And when she checks the mail at Christmas and she's like, I'm actually kind of happy. I didn't get a card from them or a gift from them because, and so there is this sense that she has this loss and John represents something for her. John, you know, represents maybe a, another chance because he's the I mean, he's the only boy among uh, among those children. Um, and I find that that so, so powerful. And then and then if we're thinking about Powell and Cooper as these two competing views of religion, uh, competing views of this, we get this. What is one of the great moments in the movie? The last time Powell comes to the farmhouse and he's singing, leaning on the everlasting arms. And then she starts singing, not not in opposition to him, but in but like in harmony with how he's singing it. And there is this this sense of like we are almost literally competing for the soul of the world, right? Like, I mean, this is where it takes on like a mythic quality of like these are two ways to understand how we could approach this. And um, and we're we actually in that moment get to see love and hate, you know, like 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 they are they are they are entwined with each other at that point and i like that is such a such a masterful moving moment um and what's great is she doesn't sing the same things he's singing she sings like the harmony parts to what he's singing so he's singing leaning on the everlasting arms and she's singing along with that leaning on jesus leaning on jesus so like it's even better than if she was just singing with him 
it's a very Augustinian moment to me because, you know, Augustine's talked famously about how, you know, in the church, there's good and bad intermixed, and you're, we're just going to leave it to God to kind of sort it out. So I I, I, I love that. Image. The other thing that's wonderful about, um, I'm not sure, I think it's that scene where she's kind of this whistler's mother with the gun, mm-hmm. and she, who is the good person, is actually in the shadow, and Powell is actually in, in the light. And so I guess another one of those moments where you're reminded that appearances don't necessarily tell you who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. I also want to go back to what you said about her and John. I think that's really important because when, when Mitchell, when Powell first appears, um, you may recall, John is in the bedroom with his sister and he's telling that story about bad men um, and about Kings. And it's at that point that Powell's shadow shows up and he never actually finished the story. Later on, when he comes to Rachel's, he's really taken by her story of, of the baby Moses being found on, on the river. And there's a sense in which they are kindred souls in terms of they want to figure out how do their lives fit into larger narratives. And so Rachel does that with the story of Moses, and then she, um, she edits it so that it includes both John and his sister. Um, and then, of course, she uses the story of the massacre of the innocents. Uh, as a way to kind of connect to Chung's experiences. So I think that's another way in which her reading, her religion and her reading of the Bible is very different from, from Powell's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I had, I, that's the next thing I had in my notes is how this is about the malleability of story too, mm-hmm. that, 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 and, and there, there are, and there are other characters who do this as well. I mean, even Powell's Cain and Abel story is like, not exactly the story of Cain and Abel, but he's like using that to do this other thing. So we get John's bedtime story. We get Pearl when they're on the boat, sings the song about the pretty fly who flew away mm. and the pretty children who flew away. I feel like and this is again where I where I connected to Spirited Away a little bit. I feel like we are watching this story become mythology. <laughs> you know, it's like and it's like because we're watching people telling versions of the story to try to make sense out of it, to maybe try to make it palatable to each other, to themselves, to children. Um, so, so, you know, Rachel is doing that. And then, then, and then we also get, again, this bookend of Rachel beginning by telling this, like giving this piece of advice. And it makes you wonder, is this all a story that she's telling? Because by the end of the story, she basically addresses camera almost again, <laughs> when she says, you know, they abide and they endure. <laughs> there is this sense of like, well, is this, is this all a story? Is this is this a myth she is telling us? You know, it's set in you know Depression era America and, and things like that. So I love I love what this what this movie does with story and almost like the the in real time creation of different mythology to explain the story. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? I have one yeah. one one last thought, but it's pretty minor. Yeah, a couple of random things. Um, one is I, I, I wanted to go back to one more connection between Icy and Powell, um, and that is their attitude towards sex. Mm. Because Icy is talking at the picnic about, about sex, and she says she's been married for 40 years, and she just lay there thinking about her canning. Uh, and somehow, you know, it's ridiculous to think that the value of marriage is love and love and sex. So I just like, I like that. Um, I, I like the fact that the uh, the inspiration for the, the tattooing on his knuckles is is uh, is came from real life. Uh, that suppose that supposedly um, uh, the author uh, the author novel Davis Grubb actually saw somebody in a bar somewhere that had love and hate like that tattooed, and that's. And that's, of course, been the um, one of the most lasting uh, uh, impacts of the film, whether you know the film or not. If you go back to our first year of the podcast and, uh, you know, watching Do the Right Thing and Radio Rahim has Love and Hate and uh, Brass Knuckles uh, in each hand. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has a song called uh, The Cautious Man. Uh, and the line is on his right hand, Billy tattooed the word love. His left hand was the word fear, which is a kind of variation on, on, on this. Um, the final thing I want to say, I'm not sure I would pair this film with, uh, with Night of the Hunter, but I was trying to think about other films with uh, evil stepfathers as opposed to evil stepmothers. And I don't know if you saw uh, 1993, there was an adaptation of Tobias Wolff's memoir, This Boy's Life, mm-hmm. with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro as the evil uh, stepfather in that film. So you could pair it if you want to do two evil stepfathers. 
I have, I have two other little little connect. Uh, one's a connection, uh, and this one—it's a film you mentioned earlier, which is uh, Fritz Lang's M. Mm. I love how in Fritz Lang's M, Hall of the Mountain King becomes this musical mm. motif for this thing that you fear, and he does that with Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, which is a song we sing in church all the time. And it's so interesting. Like I, I was telling my wife about this movie, and I said, like, it'll kind of change the way you think about that song <laughs> a little bit. Um, and then the the Coens obviously use that in uh, in True Grit. That's the oh, yeah. song in True Grip. Um, yeah. The other thing, and this is much lighter, but last year, around this time, maybe a little later in the year, we watched um, Shop Around the Corner and talked about it as a secret Christmas movie. Oh, yeah. Is this a secret Christmas movie oh, because yes, of the ending? Is. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah, because that's where it ends, right? We end with Christmas. That's great. Yeah. Which also, which also leads me to a plot point, Sam, which is all that money was rightfully John's. So how come at the end it doesn't seem as though they're enjoying any of that largesse? I, I don't know. Isn't it stolen money though? Doesn't it belong to oh, wherever it's right. stolen, stolen from? Money. Oh, I'm sorry. Which is one more thing we should talk about the the reversion that John has mm-hmm. at the end to his father's arrest. So you both have Ruby saying, "But I, but I, but I really, you know, love him," and you have John, you know, kind of reverting to his father's arrest and actually, and maybe not wanting to save Powell, but this moment of he's overcome his own hatred for Powell which is of course really important that he doesn't he doesn't con- hold on to that really negative emotion. Yeah, yeah. Um so maybe this year last year on Christmas Eve I got everybody together to watch shop around the corner maybe we'll do Night of the Hunter this year for Christmas Eve. Well, you know, um, there's always a racer head too, remember? That's, that's true. That's, that's true. true. There's Christmas our there's too. our Christmas double feature Night go. of the Hunter and a racer head. Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, you know, Sam, I've been doing this thing recently where I've been trying to string movies together thematically or whatever. So uh, I think what I want to do now is I want to do a true trilogy. Um, Christoph Kozlowski's uh, Three Colors trilogy, uh, Blue, White, and Red. Um, so I want to start with Blue, which is the first film in the, in the, in the series, uh, and that's uh, 1993 uh, is the year for that. So I am very excited for this. These came out when I was mostly when I was in college, and I think... I think I saw red at Bethel film forum in the nineties, but that was red. I think it was red. It was red or white. I saw one of, I've seen one of them and I thought it was amazing. And uh, I was, I've always been curious about the other. So I'm, I'm very excited for this. Um, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this film. This is a, this is a great Testament to rewatching films because I loved this movie when I watched it a year ago. But now I feel like I feel like the second time through it came alive in other ways. And I think reading about it and talking about it helps uh, helps me see why I think this movie is so great. And again, it, it breaks my heart that we can't watch. And I can't ask you what other, you know, Charles Lawton directed movie should we watch? Because there there isn't another one. Um, this this and I think this is was part of why we watched this. But this has got to be on the list of great uh, directorial debuts. Right. Yeah, yeah. Somebody put together that list and they put this as number two, you know, right behind Citizen Kane for the our great debut. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So so thank you so much for recommending this. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about blue in the video store. So.